1: What if I told you that recent innovations in stroke treatment only happened because one neurosurgeon refused to play by the rules? Welcome to Before We Die, the podcast where you'll meet the med tech innovators who will share the hurdles, successes, and heartbreaking failures in getting their products to patients before we die. I'm Joey Brenneman from Offscript Health. Now, this is not a podcast about death and dying, quite the opposite. It is about the amazing technological advances in the medical industry that could potentially save lives, as is the case with our guest today. If you or someone you know has had a stroke, the treatment received at the hospital was very likely developed by today's guest, Dr. Nick Hopkins, a leading neurosurgeon who found his greatest innovations in the cardiology lab. But before we talk with Dr. Hopkins, let's say hello to our Before We Die creators and panel of experts. Hello, Sandra Miller.
2: Hello, Joey.
1: And hey, John McMahon.
2: Hey, right back to you, Joey.
1: And Craig Allman, good morning, afternoon, or evening. I beat you to your usual. Uh, Hi, Joey. All right. So, Sandy, can you start us off and give us a little bit of background about Dr. Hopkins?
3: Sure. So to improve treatments uh, for patients who've had a stroke, Dr. Nick Hopkins pioneered the field of interventional neuroradiology. And all that basically means is using incredibly small catheters in tiny arteries in your brain to treat issues such as clots and aneurysms. Dr. Hopkins also trained the majority of doctors in the country who specialize in interventional neuroradiology He's also the founder of the Jacobs Institute in Buffalo, New York, and is responsible for their vision, their groundbreaking collaborative model for fostering innovation in vascular
2: medicine. Nick is an absolute visionary. He and his team have really transformed stroke on this planet. If you're having, you or your loved ones are having a stroke intervened upon in a clinic, it's very likely from a procedure or a device that's been championed by them. When I first met him in 2003, he was really focused on stroke prevention, stroke prevention in that sometimes when they're working on your heart, there's a risk that you'll knock off debris and that can cause a stroke. And what that does is it limits that risk, limits the ability of patients who can get treated. So when he first did that, at that time, it was really transformational for patients. He did it, though, not in Buffalo. He actually traveled to a country having a civil war to do the very first patients. So he's willing to really go out on a limb at at all levels in the interest of patient care. And now in the past two decades, he and his team have continued to transform stroke across diagnosis, treatment, and recovery.
0: And we're really, really fortunate to have him here today.
1: And Craig, what are your thoughts about Dr. Hopkins?
0: Dr. Hopkins is interesting to listen to because he won't just come out and say, oh, I reinvented stroke treatment worldwide. He's just not the kind of guy to say that. So you kind of have to listen between the lines, so to speak, to really understand the impact he's had on the field and on multiple generations of practitioners.
1: Yeah, and possibly the impact on his wife, because uh, while we were setting up to talk with Dr. Nick Hopkins, we had the chance to chat with his wife, Bonnie Hopkins, and I think that she gave us such a great introduction of her husband, and she also shared her insight on what it's like to be married to a world-renowned neurosurgeon. So here's Bonnie Hopkins. So Bonnie, what is it like being married to Nick for all of these years?
4: Well, in the very beginning, when he had a bunch of brains in our garage and he would come home and play with the brains in the basement, it was a little frightening, to tell you the truth. I, I thought I knew him pretty well, but that, uh, I mean, I think that was the start of he sort of breaking the rules and trying to, at that point, he was making instruments to work in the brain because they didn't have what he wanted for it. So he's a visionary. There's no question. He looks around corners for the next next thing in life and in his professional career and he's always been extremely inquisitive, extremely thorough in anything that he tackles. And he has fun doing it. He's loved his career. I think I can speak for you on that one. I mean, he'd jump out of bed every morning to go to work. Long hours, hard work, but loved it. So it's, it's been quite a ride. We've known each other a long time, and uh, we've had a lot of fun.
1: And now, here's our conversation with Dr. Nick Hopkins. Welcome, Dr. Nick Hopkins. We are so excited to talk with you today. But before we get into your life's work and all of the advancements that you have made for stroke victims, I wonder if we can just start by you describing for our listeners, what does a patient experience when they're having a stroke?
5: Oh, that's a great question. So what is a stroke? Uh, might be the lead-in question. So if you have a, a major stroke, what that really amounts to is a, a blood clot. Which usually forms someplace else, breaks loose and travels through the vascular system from the heart or the carotid artery or someplace unknown, and then lodges in the brain. And it will travel as far as it can until it gets to the artery that's getting small enough that it blocks any further progress of the clot. Now, the main location where we find most clots is in the middle cerebral artery. So these clots don't need to be very big to cause devastating results for the patient because it controls virtually all the function on the other side of the body.
1: And what is the patient experiencing when this is going on?
5: Usually the first thing that happens with a stroke is that you lose cognitive function. So most people have no awareness that they're having a stroke. And so they may be paralyzed on one side and they just don't know it. That's kind of the big bugaboo with stroke is because patients aren't tuned in enough to know they got a problem so they don't cry for help. Whereas with a heart attack, you know, you get chest pain and shortness of breath and you're miserable, patients scream for help. But that doesn't happen with stroke.
1: Because it's like a temporary paralyzation or because it's happening and then it's over or moves on? or
5: It depends on the clot. If the clot is firm enough and formed enough and it lodges in the right place, it can be permanent. If it's a clot that's a little bit loosely packed, then it might dissolve on its own. So a lot of people will have what we call a transient ischemic attack, which usually means that you've had an embolus that is a a little clot that traveled from someplace else in the body, lodged in the brain, and then it just dissolved on its own because we have a pretty effective intrinsic system for dissolving clots. It's called the lytic system. So less complex clots uh, will resolve on their own. So a patient may be paralyzed for a minute, five minutes, a half an hour, or even more and then recover fully
1: when people talk about mini strokes is that what they mean
5: most people think of that as a mini stroke we call it a transient ischemic okay. attack and the beauty of that is it's a warning it's a wonderful warning mm-hmm. that something's going on there's some place in your body that is feeding up clots that are going to your brain and you better find out quickly what it is
3: so nick in terms of the clots itself i mean is it just bad luck? Are there certain things that make you more likely to get a clot?
5: A clot has to come from somewhere. And our task when somebody has a TIA is to find out where. Probably the most common location is from the heart. And the most common condition is a heart irregularity called atrial fibrillation. So atrial fibrillation means that there's a part of the heart called the atrium that is fibrillating. It's not functioning normally. And when that happens, you get turbulence. And when you get turbulence, then clots can form. Uh, atrial fibrillation is notorious for resulting in clot formation, which if it's going to travel from the heart, where is it going to go? It could go to the leg or the kidney or someplace else. But the most direct uh, route from the heart is up the aorta and into the carotid or vertebral arteries and into the head. We always look carefully to see if there's any evidence of cardiac problem that could be causing the stroke. The other area that commonly causes that kind of a a TIA is the carotid artery. If a plaque develops in your carotid artery and the plaque gets to be degenerated a little bit, uh, a little piece of the plaque can break off and do the same thing. Our job is when somebody has a TIA is to quickly evaluate where the heck did it come from? And if we can pinpoint where it came from, stop the process wherever it's occurring and prevent more clots from breaking loose, then we can prevent further ischemic events or strokes.
1: So how do you pinpoint where it came from?
5: Uh, You pinpoint it by looking. You look at the carotids and you look at the heart and you look at the cardiac rhythm and and you image those structures and see. Once you're on the attack, it's not that difficult to, to figure out whether there's something coming from the heart or the carotids. There are lots of other conditions that can cause the blood to thicken and, and cause a clot to develop, but those are the two that, you know, we focus on the most when somebody has a, a mini-stroke.
1: And what's the treatment when someone comes to the hospital with a stroke?
5: Once they arrive with a, we'll call it a TIA, or a minor stroke, so you know that there's a a chance to find the the source and fix it. Uh, Once that happens, then your job is to do the imaging studies or electrical studies that tell you where the most likely source of the problem is. And once you figure that out, then you can talk with whichever group. If it's coming from the carotids, then you're gonna talk to the neurodudes. If it's coming from the heart, then you're going to talk to the cardiologist. Both of them are very familiar with those problems.
3: How much does it matter that you get patients to the hospital, patients who are having a stroke or stroke symptoms, to the hospital incredibly quickly? Help us understand how how time plays a role there.
5: That's probably the most critical thing in in management of stroke is time. Mm -hmm. First of all, it's interesting to note that from the time of Hippocrates until 2015, there was no recognized catheter-based treatment for stroke. Hmm. It was all, you know, just medication.
1: That's not that long ago. That's only, what, seven years seven. ago. <laughs> yeah.
5: That, that's right. It's a little scary, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So from like 450 BC until 2015, we didn't have anything for stroke. We basically followed the cardiologists. The cardiologists are absolute experts in fixing arteries. And that happened 25 years ago that they really figured it out that if you've got a heart attack, which is a blood clot in the uh, major artery in the heart, you can save that patient and return them to normal. If you can get in in time, put a stent in and open up the artery. The difference is the heart is a muscle. Uh, The brain is a different animal because it's extremely sensitive to lack of oxygen. We call it ischemia. Brain ischemia is not tolerated nearly as well as myocardial ischemia is. But the concept of a blocked artery and opening the artery and and so on is very similar. If you can reopen the artery in under two hours from the time of onset, that you can count on a 90% or better outcome, which is pretty extraordinary. That's like we get in the heart. If it goes all the way out to five or six hours, your success rate goes down to like 25%. The timing is the absolute critical factor. And that's why we all work on ways to shorten the time. And I think that's one of the things that is critical about stroke is we need to revise our systems of care for stroke to make them even better than that for acute heart attack.
1: That's kind of a big undertaking to re-educate the entire hospital system. So how do you go about doing that?
5: That's a challenge. There's so much inertia in the system. People aren't used to having to rush like that for anything, let alone a stroke. So the level of awareness in our population is still relatively low, I think. It's our job to find ways to modify systems of care so that when somebody comes to a hospital, it sets off a fire alarm that you know people jump on it and do something as quickly as humanly possible.
1: It's not only then raising awareness among patients themselves but you're talking about like raising awareness within hospitals too you bet so what's the resistance there if we have the information is it just well this is not how we do things or
5: it's just inertia it's the system's been functioning the way it's been functioning for hundreds of years now you're introducing a whole new concept of speed
3: you took a different approach at your hospital to improve time
5: yeah within 15 20 minutes of the entrance to the door of the emergency room, we can have a patient with a catheter in his body that is poised to go up and fetch the particle and remove it. That's a huge advantage.
2: And what was the time like before? Like, how much time did that take out of the loop?
5: That's a good question. So, you know, with all the fiddling around that occurs, patient hits the emergency room. It, it's five minute trip to the CT scanner, then back to the emergency room, you know, let's get everything ready and call the cath lab team in. And that whole process could take anywhere from an hour and a half to two hours, which is unacceptable.
3: One of the things that I was fascinated by when I visited you in Buffalo, and, and you've spent, you know, the majority of your career practicing in Buffalo, New York, you shared that there's this unusually high prevalence of, of vascular and other sort of risk factor patients with risk factors, uh, vascular disease and other things in the sort of western New York region, the greater buffalo region yeah you one of the things you mentioned is that's really led to a higher prevalence of stroke in that region. Can you talk a little bit more about that
5: yeah it's pretty simple when I when you analyze all the data, it gets down to one thing: chicken wings.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that is not true is it <laughs> bad diet is is your point <laughs> they are the best chicken wings ever though I have to say nothing <laughs> nothing compares to buffalo wings they really don't
5: they were invented at Teresa's Anchor Bar which ironically is right across the street from the Gates Vascular Institute so we have considered the possibility of a zip line between Gates <laughs> and
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> Teresa's
5: <laughs>
1: Talk about improving time. (laughs) Yeah,
5: but it's it's bad diet. It's winters that can lead to a lot of sedentary activity, Mm. Uh, Um, you know, a whole bunch of beers and watch the whatever sporting event you want. It's a climate that in the winter months, it doesn't lead to a very healthy population. But add it all up and we've got one of the highest incidents of cardiovascular disease and stroke in the Northeast.
1: Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast.
2: So Nick, this has been really great. What we've not touched on uh, is the fact that you've really been the champion personally to really change care. And uh, I know you as uh, a rather modest on this topic, but we, we're going to now dig into the things that you first saw in your career and how you stepped up and say, not only is there got to be a better way, but you made it happen. You know, when you started your training and you came out and started seeing how they were treating patients and what were some of those first interventions you did that you think were some of the first or most aggressive treatments to go after clots?
5: I guess about the time that I entered neurosurgery as a trainee, and I watched vascular surgeons in the brain and the challenges that they faced, which back then in the 70s were pretty monumental. If you, We didn't have a microscope. We didn't have micro instruments. If you made a mistake, it was the end of the patient or a major stroke. And I got to thinking that there's got to be a better way and that maybe the vascular highway is the answer. I learned how to do angiography by sticking a needle in the carotid artery or the brachial artery. And it's something that's a nice tool to have in your toolbox. But I actually was looking around for somebody to teach me how to use this brand new technique called the Seldinger technique. And I landed on a cardiologist who was a dear friend. He had trained with Mason Soins at the Cleveland Clinic. And he had learned how to do cardiac angiography by doing a little cut down on the brachial artery and then inserting a catheter, And then it's a pretty much a straight shot to the heart. And so he taught me how to do angiography.
2: For the listeners, so angiography is the injection of a dye that another imaging can then, as the dye traverses through the vessels, gives you a map to see either where your arteries are open. And if you know where they should be an artery, you can also assume that one is closed.
5: You know, you're just injecting dye and taking a lot of pictures in succession to see where the dye is going. It turned out to be a very, very useful tool later in my career that then, you know, I started using catheters the way we use them today from the, the Seldinger technique, which, you know, we go from the, either from the, the groin or uh, now more and more from the, the arm, the radial artery and the hand and the wrist. There are so many access points because it is the vascular highway. Any place you can get in, uh, you can then uh, direct your catheter to wherever you want to go. And aside from the fact that there are a lot of twists and turns, if you figure all that out, then you can get almost any place. But back in in the early days, there was nobody else doing what I was doing from a neurosurgical standpoint. And then, gosh, it must have been about 1976 or so that I had a patient that had a torn artery in his head and the standard treatment for that was barbaric at that time. And we would do an incision into the leg and cut out a bunch of muscle and then cut down on the carotid artery and try to push muscle up the carotid artery to plug the whole thing up because the poor patient's eyeball is popping out of his head and he's going blind. I had heard of a, a guy in Boston who developed a trepalumin balloon. So I was able to get my hand my hands on a couple of those balloons and I put one in his carotid artery and put it up into his neck where the tear was in his carotid artery in his head, blew up the balloon and was gone. And it was like a miracle. That was an epiphany for me. When it got to stroke, the epiphany was later.
1: I love that you were so willing to think outside the box and you're boldly trying things that no one else was doing. Is there another story like that that inspired you to push the boundaries of your field?
5: I had a friend who was a community leader. He came in one night with a major stroke and they called me and they told me that he was there. And we didn't have anything then except we did have some small catheters, but we didn't have any tools and we didn't know what to do with stroke. Uh, I said, we'll take him up to the cath lab and we'll see what we can do. So we did. So
2: you're taking tools from the coronary side that are getting developed and you're like, well, I've got problems over here. I'm going to use your stuff and, you know, may not be exactly the same size or the That's same right. length. I'm going to try it.
5: Yep. Except they're going to the heart and we're going to the head. So anyway, we we took him up and we put a catheter. We were able to navigate the catheter up into, into the origin of his middle cerebral artery where the clot was. And then we took a wire. Didn't know what else to do. We took a wire, put a corkscrew curve on it. And pushed it back and forth in the clot and squirted a little bit of a lytic called uh, urokinase. That's all we had back then. And lo and behold, the clot was gone. And the guy was normal within a few minutes of of removing the clot. That was the first epiphany. We can fix this disease. The next one was a priest at Canisius College who developed a major stroke. He was sent to another hospital. Somebody said, well, they got this lunatic neurosurgeon over (laughs) at Millard (laughs) Fillmore. Send him over there. We'll see what can happen. And in his case, just by some miracle, uh, his anatomy was very straight. So the catheter that I was using for a guide catheter went all the way up into the base of the skull. And then I, as we always do, aspirated to make sure I wasn't doing anything wrong or crazy. And I sucked back and this clot came out. And then I did a little injection and he was normal. He had had a major occlusion at the the junction of his carotid and middle cerebral artery. And he was normal within an hour. That was another epiphany for me that, you know, in many of these cases, we can suck this clot out. We don't have to go up there with a lot of fancy tools and manipulate the artery. Since those days, there have been a real awakening in industry. It's interesting how serendipity plays the very first stent called the solitaire that was used as a stent retriever, which means put the stent up across the clot and then pull it back and hope the clot comes with you. That was done by total serendipity because they were doing another type of procedure and the patient had a stroke and they pulled the the little tiny stent back. And lo and behold, they had a they had a clot and the patient got better. And so that was the birth of a new industry called stent retrievers. And that um, still is a very important part of stroke treatment today.
3: Nick, let's pause for a second because I I don't want to miss something that I think is really important. What you're talking about truly is this pioneering phase of taking these catheters that are normally going into coronary arteries of pretty small diameters, not necessarily straight shots, but you know, they're sort of curved, they wrap the arteries wrap around the heart, and you're taking them to get to this middle cerebral artery. What's sort of the relative difference between what the cardiologists are navigating, and what you are navigating having to navigate in the brain?
5: Yeah, the the anatomy going to the cardiac circulation is Pretty straightforward, usually, whereas it, uh, going to the brain, it can be extremely tortuous. So that, that was the first barrier. It was interesting to me that back in those days, as I looked around and I saw the cardiologists were way ahead of us in terms of technology, people would come up to the, the neuro cath lab looking for me and everything. Where's, where's Hopkins? Well, he's up in the cardiac cath lab you know, swiping equipment. (laughs) And that's how I got going with better technology. And that was also an an epiphany that, hey, you know, the guys from other disciplines, they know stuff that we don't. And so we need to be interacting with these guys because, you know, they have great technology. It's just different, but they're in the same vascular system. So I spent a lot of my time learning from cardiologists. That was a wonderful experience for me. Fortunately, you know, you get so busy in your own field and you live in your own silos. So most people stay in their silos. I found that branching out, talking to the cardiologists, talking to the vascular surgeons and the radiologists, I could learn an enormous amount from those guys. That was really the genesis of uh, the meeting we call the Failure Analysis Advisory Council, which is thought leaders from the, the major vascular disciplines. It's a small conference, maybe 30 people. And then we present to each other our worst complication of the year. And then there's open discussion. And it's amazing how often, you know, you present a disaster and the guy from radiology or cardiology comes and says, well, why the hell didn't you use a such and such? And I'm (laughs) scratching my head saying, what's a such and such? And so the, the interplay between the disciplines was extraordinary. And that, of course, led to other wacko ideas like the Gates Vascular Institute.
2: This theme of intersections has really been like a step function when I look at the progress that you and the team you put together have made You've talked about going to the cardiologist and getting their devices. But at some point, you started actually asking for companies that are making devices. You know, do you go to big companies? Do you go to small companies? Which path led you to start really getting things custom designed to go into the brain instead of borrowing things from the heart?
5: We go to all of them. I guess I am lucky that uh, my successor at the Jacobs Institute, Adnan Siddiqui, is connected in ways I've never even conceived anyone could connect with every every major neuro company and, and every minor neuro company in the world. So somebody in Timbuktu comes up with a, a cool idea for a new product. You know where they're going to bring it first? They're going to bring it to the Jacobs Institute to let Siddiqui look at it and opine whether it's worth pursuing. Over the years, the field of neuro has gradually realized that you know the technology is similar, but it has to be more delicate and has to be more navigable in tortuous arteries. But it's still the same concept. It's still navigating through the arterial system to get to your problem. That's what we all do. And we learn from each other. And that's the beauty of the, the Gates Vascular Institute.
2: All right, Nick, before we talk about the Vascular Institute, I want to stop and share with the audience one of the iconic stories of, of Nick really being Nick and doing whatever it takes. And the particular story I want to talk about is involved one of your first-in-man cases to prevent strokes.
1: Okay, wait, wait, John. What's a first-in-man case?
2: Okay, that's a great question, Joey. A first-in-man case is when you finally do all the testing you have, you have your device ready and you're going to actually do that. You're going to treat the very first patient. And in this case, Nick flew to South America because the FDA was not a fan at the time of letting first-in-man cases being done in the U.S. And so what they did is they go into the middle of drug-infested, Civil War-torn Colombia to do something that had never been done before.
5: Sure. We went to Medellin, Colombia, up in the mountains, most beautiful place I think I've ever been. Dangerous back then. So our hosts, they wouldn't let us out of their sight. We weren't allowed to to go outside of the the main area if you go outside you're liably kidnapped and then you spend the next six months in the mountains waiting for the the FARC to collect their their ransom so we went down and did all these cases in medellin and then we got out of dodge and we learned an enormous amount
2: and so this was the first filter wire trip and for our listeners the filter wire is one of the first dedicated devices to capture debris during a procedure. It's called embolic protection. You're just knocking the crud off while you're placing a stent. And Nick's being very modest because he's the champion for this in the country, in particular for carotid stenting, where there's always an acute risk when you're opening that artery that you knock something off and create a stroke. And Nick and his team, they collaborated on getting this filter first used down in Columbia.
5: That whole concept came from a guy who's probably my dearest friend. And that's Fred Koshravi. I gave a lecture at TCT, which is a big cardiology meeting. And it was a it was an FDA-sponsored meeting. And I was begging industry to develop something to protect the brain. And Fred approached me afterwards and Long and the short is, um, I helped him to develop the filter wire and it was fantastic. And that was my first venture into uh, entrepreneurship. I didn't know what entrepreneurship meant back then, but <laughs> that was a wonderful experience and all due to him. You know, uh, for the audience
2: to emphasize how this trip between Nick and Fred Kasravi changed patient care in the US. So I still remember seeing the pictures of the amount of clot, and I think everyone that saw them the first time still remembers it. The amount of clot and plaque that was captured in these very first patients. What it did is it accelerated funding to get the product approved. And now in the US, when they get a carotid stent placed, they get a filter to protect against stroke. And it's because Nick's chutzpah that that's really possible. You know, we have to sort of tease the things that you did out of you, Nick. Your hand has touched almost every stroke intervention in the world. So thank you. It's been really fun getting a chance to hear it from
5: you uh, direct in this setting. Fun doing it. Thanks, John.
1: Before we wrap, I just want to ask you, What it is that drives you to go out of your lane and cross over into other disciplines? Is it curiosity? Is it the patient? What what is it that you would say is the force inside of you that makes you go and question and find new ways of doing things?
5: I think that what drives me is the fact that we know so little. I think as we get more and more specialized, we learn uh, more and more about less and less until we know just a little bit about nothing. If you think about it, all you got to do is... Hang out with people from other disciplines, whether they be scientific disciplines or clinical disciplines or doesn't matter. You're going to learn things from the interactions. The Gates Vascular Institute has been the just an incredible opportunity. And the things that are happening there are just extraordinary. And mostly I call it the cup of coffee thing. You know, you're having a cup of coffee with a cardiologist and you're moaning about some difficult procedure that you have. And he's saying, well, what's the big deal? You want me to stop the heart for you while you're doing that? And you go, what do you mean? <laughs> and and then they just pace the patient. But it's that interdisciplinary interaction, people with different backgrounds. And we get it every day in the Institute. We get it from other clinicians, from other disciplines. We get it from scientists. We get it from nurses and techs, from everybody. And they walk in and they, you know, they, we've got a fancy coffee machine. People come up and have a cup of coffee and sit and talk. <laughs> And they go, you know, did you ever think about X? And you go, no, I never thought about X. Well, why don't you? <laughs>
1: that's awesome.
5: So it's it's just the disciplines, mixing the disciplines that is really the secret, I think.
1: I think that's a good life lesson for all of us to get out there and talk to people of different backgrounds. And it's also a great thought for us to close on today. But the exciting thing is that there is a part two of this conversation where we will learn more about Those Collisions and Those Cups of Coffee at the Jacobs Institute. Dr. Nick Hopkins, thanks again for joining us today. My pleasure. Okay, so that was a very inspiring conversation with the very humble Dr. Nick Hopkins. Craig, as you were listening, what um, stood out in your mind?
0: It's Interesting because you can listen to Dr. Hopkins and, and kind of miss the boat on the big picture, to, to mix metaphors here. He reinvented an entire field for how to treat stroke. And he did that by applying tools and technologies and kind of thinking that cardiac interventionists have been using and applied that to the brain. And you'd think, that seems pretty straightforward. Uh, one of the things I've learned in my career is that really brilliant ideas are always very simple in retrospect. And this was a brilliant idea that was simple in retrospect because he was the only person on the planet doing it. You know, there are lots of other doctors around the world who were dealing with stroke victims and not thinking, "Hey, I could use some other technique or technology to apply to this." But it just takes that one person to make the leap of faith, and he did that over and over again, and completely reinvented the field. And that, to me, is an amazing accomplishment.
2: You know, Craig, that's really important to know that he had the motivation to do it. And a big part of that is timing. It was his very first cases that he started to see, see these strokes. I think you can safely say he never got stuck in a rut. I mean, he was innovating right off the bat. And he was fortunate that he was open-minded and had exposure to the, what was going on on the interventional cardiology side. And he's crossed that bridge so many times, and it's great to hear him tell the story. And how he's how he's impacted it really can't be overstated.
1: Yeah, I love the, the crossover, too, and this idea of him going and stealing the toys of, and the tools that the the cardiologists were using and asking questions. And the collision idea I thought was really incredible.
3: So there are several really fascinating things about the story in terms of medical innovation and how it happens and a lot of medical innovation comes from doctors and and others healthcare providers who are seeking the answer to this fundamental question about there has to be a better way you know specific things that he did in that exploration early on in his career in terms of looking Outside of the walls, if you will, of his particular specialty to see what was happening in related specialties, such in this case, it was with cardiologists. You know, he's a guy who's focused on the brain. The brain docs and the the heart docs don't always have opportunities to mix. He's somebody who just didn't have any sort of ego constraints that prevented him from saying, hey, guys, I'm trying to solve this problem. How would you do that? Also, those happy, accidental sometimes collisions that occur that provide some of those insights that ultimately lead to things that are impacting and benefiting patients, if not for those you know, happy accidents, such as conversations with cardiologists, maybe at some cocktail party, I don't know. And then further, being slightly rebellious, literally going and looking at some of the equipment that the cardiologist used and bringing that to his area. Those are sort of different types of behaviors that are just some of the examples of what it's taken to establish some amazing solutions to help patients have better outcomes with strokes. So it's
2: really, really exciting. He's had a full-time job being a doctor. And I think Bonnie gave a great reference where, you know, if I bring home my work, it's generally my (laughs) laptop. But I don't have a bunch of brains in the garage, you know, um, or in the basement. (laughs) Uh, You know, just in case you get in the mood and uh, you got a question, you you don't want to go back to the office. You just go down and... uh And that's, that's really inspiring. And that, that's the story of him going to Columbia with Fred. That's a legend in the field, you know, to go into a, a, basically a civil war. He left out that the hotel, I understand was bombed the day before they checked in. So uh, the, what he'll do for patients out and beyond his regular job of treating them is legendary.
1: Yeah. The thing that I kept thinking about too, the word failure analysis meetings, failure analysis conferences. And I thought that is to mm-hmm. have a whole conference where we're going to talk about our failures quote unquote and learn from them like so often we're like okay yeah let's live and learn and leave that behind us but to have these all these you know meetings of these genius minds coming to talk about their worst complications and then brain, brainstorming them together and figuring out different things that they can do like you know we should apply that to other places too like let's come together and talk about our failure so that we can benefit people going forward. But so often, we don't even want to, you know, we just want to leave it behind us and keep going. But I just thought that was so brilliant.
0: I think for most organizations, the pattern is failure lawyers hiding. (laughs) Very different.
1: Yeah, we get scared to talk about the failures. It's like, no, let's just bury it. Sandy, you had something you wanted to say? Yeah, I just wanted to mention that if you have not yet
3: listened to the Paul Yock episode, you should, because Paul Yock's field is interventional cardiology. Paul, like Nick, was an innovator and pioneer of this field. In Paul's case, it was a field of interventional cardiology and his really initial very uh, significant invention in that field, and as well as he talks about others. But what we've just heard from Dr. Hopkins and, and how the field of neurointerventional radiology sort of developed really parallels quite nicely with Dr. Yock talking about interventional cardiology. And you'll have more understanding and context for what was going on with the cardiologist that Dr. Hopkins refers to when he says, hey, I was talking to these guys to understand what tools they had and how I might use them in the brain. It would uh, help sort of fill out that picture for you.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. And also, you're definitely going to want to listen to part two of our conversation with Dr. Nick Hopkins. We're going to be focusing specifically on the Jacobs Institute for Medical Innovation. And don't forget to listen to our Lab Before Slab mini episodes, where Sandy, John, and Craig geek out about fascinating happenings in the med tech world. And as always, our hope is that some of the cutting edge technology that we talk about on this show will be available to the patients who need them before we die. Thanks for listening. Before We Die is an Offscript health production. The executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producers are Joey Brenneman and Ariel Nachman. Before We Die is mixed by Kyle Moore. Our Before We Die panel of experts and creators of the show are Sandra Miller, John McMahon, and Craig Allman. If you like the show, ratings and reviews are always welcome. Leave us a message at 855-audio66. That's 855 855- Two eight three four six six six. Share your healthcare stories with us and we might display them on the air in a future episode. For more information, visit offscript.com. That's offscript no t, dot com.